Good morning. I'm Sana, and you're listening to Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. Every Monday morning, I'm joined by experts from across the country who are investigating our most pressing social issues and common curiosities. Over the next hour, you'll learn about their inspirations, motivations, and of course, what they know about the world around us. So grab that cup of coffee and get ready for a fun and insightful conversation. Friends, how many of us have them? That was the question Houdini asked in their 1984 classic hit song, Friends. And although that song is decades old, many of us are asking that same question today. We all need friends, that's a fact, but it can be hard to make them and keep them despite how connected social media is supposed to make us feel. So what makes friendship so difficult and what can we do to become better friends? To help us understand the science of attachment to build lasting friendships, this morning I'm joined by Dr. Marissa G. Franco. Dr. Franco is an assistant clinical professor at the University of Maryland, where she received her PhD in counseling psychology. She is a licensed counseling psychologist and friendship expert. Dr. Franco writes about friendship for psychology today, and her work has appeared in the New York Times, The Telegraph, and Vice. She is the author of Platonic, How the Science of Attachment Can Help You Make and Keep Friends, which is available in bookstores now. Good morning, Dr. Franco. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm so happy to be talking to you today. Yes, I cannot tell you how excited I am. I saw someone post, I think it was the pre-orders for your book and that title, I mean, it really jumped out at me. Uh, Thinking about friends, I think for me, I've been giving a lot of thought to how to make and keep friends. And I'm sure a lot of people have been maybe thinking about this even more intentionally, especially given the past few years. Um, And so I knew I had to get this book and of course that I had to share it with my listeners. So I am just so excited for us to talk about all of your great work. Yes, yeah, I'm so excited to dig in. Yes. All right, so we are just gonna go ahead and jump right in because you know it seems like our culture is very much obsessed about relationships, but the romantic kind. So we hear a lot about that. And there's a big push that everyone should have a soulmate and find a soulmate. And that a soulmate is of course a romantic partner, but we don't see such a big push on everyone should make friends and keep friends. Why is that? Why don't we value our friendships? Yeah, there's a lot of historical reasons for this. So It hasn't been true that we haven't valued friendships throughout history. Um, In the early 1800s and before, homophobia was viewed really differently. And this really became to intersect with friendships. Basically, you were stigmatized for having sex with someone of the same sex, but your sexual orientation, it wasn't an identity. So Mm. what that meant was that you could hold hands with friends, you could write love letters with friends, you could cuddle with friends. None of this is sex, so all of this is okay. Then around 1867, psychiatrists like Sigmund Freud basically argued that, you know, same-sex love is a disorder and created this idea that sexual orientation is an entire identity. So now it was a constellation of behaviors that could signify your identity that people were afraid to express. People are now afraid to, you know, tell their friends how much they love them, have any sort of physical intimacy with friends, even initiate new friendships because they're like, how could this come off? Might I experience the stigma of homophobia if I do this? Has specifically ravaged male friendships, men who experience homohysteria, which is the fear of being perceived as gay, um, are just less likely to form those lasting connections because all of these behaviors are necessary for platonic intimacy, but people feel very afraid to express them because of how we stigmatize any sort of love and intimacy as um, as sexual love. Mm, that's so sad. So sad yeah, so for sad. us. <laughs> He's so sad. <laughs> because as you detail in the book, friendships are really important. Could you talk about some of the the reasons why friendships are so important? Yeah. So one of the reasons friendship is really important is just because it it literally helps us figure out who we are. Um, How do we learn who we are? We see ourselves reflected in people and we, we feel resonance and then we incorporate that into our sense of self, right? And so I think a lot of us may have experienced in the pandemic, myself included, 
when you're only around one person, you only experience one part of you. You feel like you're sort of shrinking and we need an entire community to feel like our whole selves. This has been the reality throughout the history of our species. And in fact, there's, there's actually three types of loneliness that researchers have identified, only one of which is fulfilled by a traditional spouse. So there's intimate loneliness, the desire for a close intimate connection, which you can get through a spouse, a best friend. There's relational loneliness, a desire for close friends. And then there's also collective loneliness, which is desire to be part of a community working mm-hmm. towards a common goal, like your, you know, your places of worship or your sports leagues, for example, your hobbies and interest groups. So if we're just simply relying on one person, what that means is that we're inevitably going to be kind of lonely, right? Because our, our bodies just don't work where, where one person can fulfill all the ways in which we need connection. Mm, I think that's so important what you just said, that one person cannot fulfill all of our needs for connection. And I'm so glad you said that because our culture, I think, really kind of conditions us to believe that once we find that one true love, which of course is a romantic love, then all of a sudden we'll be this complete person and and life will be, you know, rainbows and butterflies (laughs) and the whole world will open up to us. But what it sounds like you're saying is actually it's through our friendships that the whole world, this big world, and even who we are really opens up. Exactly. Yeah. And you know what? Interesting that we're having this conversation because Having to rethink some of this, these ideas is really what pushed me to write this book. I did not always view relationships this way. In my young 20s, I felt like I needed to find you know, the one to make me lovable, to prove that I was worthy of love. And as you know, anyone in their one young 20s, things were not going um, as <laughs> planned. And then I started this wellness group with my friends where we met up each week to practice wellness and we cooked and we did yoga together and we meditated. But the most healing thing of all was certainly just having community. And I I felt the force of that platonic love. And here I was questioning, why doesn't this love matter? It feels so profound and it feels so meaningful for me. And how have these cultural narratives really influenced how I feel connected, right? Because loneliness is an interpretation that I don't have the connection that I want. And so if we're not in romantic partnerships, even if we do feel fulfilled and connected, this sort of supremacy of romantic love can still sink us, sink in and make us feel and devalue the connections that we do have. And in a society that is so lonely, we shouldn't be throwing even a morsel of connection away, in my opinion. And so my, my drive to really write this book was that, hey, this view that we have of one person being your one and only, it's hurting us when we're not in those relationships. It's hurting us when we are in those relationships, right? Because you know the research finds that if you go through turbulence with your romantic partner, and you have friendships outside of that, you're more likely to survive those periods of turbulence. You're more resilient to them because you have these other relationships centering you and keeping you anchored and allowing you to withstand some of the difficulties inherent to intimacy, right? And so I think we just really, really need to rethink this hierarchy, to rethink this narrative and have such a more expansive view on community to all of our benefits. Yes. I like this idea of reframing, right? Because that's really what the book is about, about reframing how we think about friendships, but also how we show up in friendships. So how we are friends ourselves. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that. Um, You mentioned how you had this wellness group and you talk about it in the book. And honestly, I was like, oh my gosh, I love this idea. I was like, I want to start just a little wellness group (laughs) with my friends. I'm like, would they think that's weird? So already (laughs) then, you know, like I'm still reading the book and I'm like, oh, they probably won't think it's weird. (laughs) Yes. Um, But again, just thinking about some of the ways that we stop ourselves from making those connections or deepening the connections we already have. Um, But also I love how you've written yourself into the book as well, right? That you're not just an expert who has this, you know, book knowledge or clinical knowledge, but yes, you're a person who also needs friends. And Mm -hmm. so you share some of your personal experiences as well as vignettes and anecdotes um, from other folks that you've talked with and um, surveyed and interviewed. And so I love how personal it is because I think it can be scary to even think about, well, why don't I know how to make friends? Even Mm -hmm. though as adults, we all probably have 
kind of said, how do I make friends? We're outside of a lot of the structures of our, our youth that kind of facilitated making those friendships. And so what I love about the book is you give us these six practices to help make and keep friends. And they're all rooted first in understanding our attachment styles. So I'm wondering if you could tell us just a little bit about what are attachment styles and why is even understanding our attachment style important for navigating friendships? Yeah. So while I was sifting through all the, the research, I realized a certain theme that our personality is a fundamental reflection of our experiences of connection or lack thereof. Whether you are friendly, open, trusting, vulnerable, you know, warm, cynical, all of these are determined by your past experiences of connection, right? And then not only that, that who you are affects how you connect. Not only have these connections affected who you are, but then whether you're able to connect isn't random, right? It depends on whether you've had these healthier relationships in the past. So these people that are securely attached, they've had these healthier relationships in the past, starting with their parents, and they are able to embody a number of characteristics that allow them to continue to connect with people, such as initiative, vulnerability, authenticity, affection, generosity, anger, productive anger, working through conflict really well, right? Whereas those, those folks who have struggled in their past relationships, maybe their parents didn't fulfill all of their needs per se, they struggle with insecure attachment styles, which tend to manifest as anxious attachment, which is I'm afraid everybody doesn't really like me and they're gonna abandon me. So I engage in a bunch of strategies that become my personality for how I orient to relationships. I try to move very quickly. I might overshare. I don't bring up conflict because again, I'm afraid of, you're gonna abandon me. I reject first, right? And then the avoidantly attached similar have, have um, found that people won't show up for them in their times of need, but their strategy is different. They um, are closed off. They don't experience joy and connection in the same way. They don't trust people. They think people want something out of them. Um, the people around them think, oh, I don't really know you. Like you're never actually vulnerable with me, right? And and so it's it's not, they're, you know, these attachment styles, they're adaptive for the context in which they were created, right? We develop them in a context, maybe within our, our early family relationships, where it was adaptive to have these strategies because your needs wouldn't necessarily get met. But the issue is that we take these same templates and we continue to use them throughout life in relationships that are different fundamentally than where we grew up. But because we have these same templates, our fears become sort of self-fulfilling prophecies, right? So if I'm anxiously attached and I don't hear from you, and I think you're just rejecting me rather than that you've been busy, right? I am them going to withdraw from you. They don't care about me anyway, so I'm not going to respond now, right? Um, and then people are actually going to reject you, right? So there's this way that our assumptions about our social world become true because they influence our behaviors such that we behave in ways that make them true. Mm. You know, I love this idea of that. Yes, we had these strategies that worked at one point, given the context we were in that helped us survive. But now here we are in new situations where we don't necessarily have any new behaviors that we haven't created kind of a new template moving forward. And so we're relying on these defense mechanisms that don't really work. Yeah. Um, and I think when I was reading this part of the book, which is pretty early, right? You're explaining these different attachment styles. Sometimes it can sting a little to see yourself on the page. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, but that's why I think the book is so important, right? Because as you talk about, we have to kind of confront ourselves and understand ourselves and start to love and accept ourselves as we create friendships or if we really want to create the friendship that we all desire, but also the friendships that I believe we all deserve as well. Yep. yep. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I share this information on attachment and some people are like, well, good for those people with healthy, you know, <laughs> childhoods. That wasn't me. So thank you. Um, but, I, but I think in the book, I'm really arguing that understanding your attachment style is a form of empowerment because if you don't understand your attachment style, you just assume that it's all in the world and that I can't change anything because it's just that the world is cruel or, you know, the world people are just in it for themselves. Right. And so you're stuck, right. You're stagnant. But when I, when I show you the, throughout the book that, oh, there actually are different things that you could be doing to contribute to the success of your connections. It's empowering. Cause it's like, 
oh, now I could actually change things. I'm not stuck with these relationships when I desire so much more. And I think I am arguing in the book. I certainly am an example as someone who's, you know, become more secure over time, especially from writing a book on, on how to become more secure, um, that your attachment is totally changeable. And in fact, studies show that even knowing your attachment style can help change it and that most people actually change their attachment style, some research finds, right? And so the book is kind of like, here are all the ways you can become more secure and hopefully have healthier relationships. Yes. And I love that empowerment. I love that you use that word because that really is what you're walking us through this like whole process of empowering ourselves to be better friends. And that's really exciting that we don't have to be who we've always been. And we don't have to have the failed relationships that we've always had, that we can uh, change some of our behaviors and some of the ways we're thinking about our interactions as well. Well, before we get into these six practices, as you've laid out in the book, let's take a quick break. This is Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7. FM. You're listening to Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm Sanaa and I'm here with Dr. Marissa G. Franco, the author of Platonic, How the Science of Attachment Can Help You Make and Keep Friends, which is available in bookstores now. All right, let's get into some of these six practices to help us make and keep friends. The first one, maybe the biggest barrier um, is taking initiative. Yep. Um, okay. So why can't we just be friends with, you know, the people on social media? Isn't that enough? <laughs> Do we actually have to go outside of our houses? And meet people? So painful. Um, we do, you know, a big thing I argue in the book is that as adults, friendship doesn't happen organically, really. I mean, it's, it's more, it's a lot more rare and that's partially because, we haven't adjusted to the fact that as adults compared to when we were kids, we have a really different infrastructure. Uh, Rebecca G. Adams, she's a sociologist and she argues that, uh, well, for us to have friendship happen organically, we need continuous unplanned interaction. We need vulnerability. And as adults, we don't necessarily have this environment. As kids, we see each other every day in school. We let our guards down in recess, at gym, at lunch. But as adults, we're seeing only our colleagues every day Many of us are not vulnerable at work. In fact, <laughs> studies find the more time we spend together at work, the less close we feel, right? So what that means is that you can't rely on the same template you had when you were a kid for making friends. And in fact, studies show that when you assume friendship happens just based on luck, you're more lonely over time. Whereas when you assume it happens based on effort, you're less lonely, right? And so we really are going to need to start initiating, to start saying, hey, it was so great to connect with you. I'd love to connect further. Could we exchange contact information? Mm. Friendship takes effort. It's not just happening magically. Um, that mindset shift, I think, is really important. Uh, again, that empowerment, right? And empowering us to actually make friends. I think I read somewhere that as adults, we need to, uh, because we don't have these structured, structured interactions like we did when we were younger, um, something about like, interacting with someone intentionally like at least 12 times a month, which you're like, wow, that's a lot. But, <laughs> right. If I'm not, you know, when I was younger, I'm in school, I'm seeing you every day. Right. That's different. Whereas an adult, it's like, wow, like really being proactive about spending time with someone. Uh, but it's something that I, I've taken to heart as far as um, if someone extends to me an invitation to like meet up that I say yes. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, try to also say, hey, let's do, you know, whatever it is that we might have mutual interest in, but it does take more effort than when you're maybe in college and you just bump into people, you know, all day. Exactly. Yeah. You know, there's this phenomenon called the mere exposure effect. And it's based on some research that when researchers implanted these random women into a psychology lecture, Nobody remembered the woman, but they liked the woman who showed up for the most lectures, 20% more than the one who didn't show up for any. Mm -hmm. And it's our unconscious tendency to like people when we tend to see them more regularly, right? And so that's why one of the tips I share for making friends is recreate that infrastructure from childhood, right? Instead of going to a one-off networking event, find a regular professional development group. Like just commit to something that's repeated over time for yourself to have more a more organic infrastructure because it is a lot of work, right? And you can do it, you can engage in the work, but if you have this setting where you're already, you know, capitalizing on mere exposure 
then it's going to be a little easier. But the other implication of that, Sana, is, is just the idea that early on, friendship is uncomfortable. We are, mm-hmm. this mere exposure effect tells us that when we first meet, people aren't familiar. So we're going to feel weary. We're going to feel uncomfortable. That doesn't mean, hey, let me drop out of this like I did in college. Oh, I went to one group meeting. No one talked to me. You know, it's time for me to leave. Um, but we have to commit. I say, you know, show up for three months once you find a community that begins to resonate with you, because then you capitalize on mere exposure. The other suggestion that I have, when you go to this community, you have overcome overt avoidance, our tendency to avoid people because we're scared. Mm. But you also have to overcome covert avoidance, which is our tendency when we show up physically to check out mentally. We are on our phones. We're talking to that one person we know, you know, we're pretending to watch the game. We're not introducing ourselves. We have to overcome covert avoidance by saying, you know, hey, my name is Marissa. You know, what brought you here? How have you liked it? Because although we all, we, we tend to fear, oh, this comes off as weird. This comes off as clingy, right? What the research tells us, the theory of inferred attraction, is that people like people that they think like them. And when we initiate with people, when we introduce ourselves, we're implying to people, hey, I like you. I value you. And that's what makes people want to be friends with us. Mm. Marissa, I'm going to be honest. Already, just that whole, everything you just explained, it sounds so good. But I'm starting to get a little anxiety about just thinking about <laughs> having to go someplace, meet people, talk to them. And I know for folks listening, also might be thinking, wait a minute. So first, you, I have to leave my house. And then I have to talk to people <laughs> that I don't know. Um, but what you said, in the beginning, friendship is uncomfortable. And I think that's something if, if you're listening, you're like, oh, this sounds terrible. Like, I don't want to do this. Like you can even write that little phrase down to remind yourself, right. About in the beginning, friendship is uncomfortable that the way you're feeling is normal, normal, natural. It's okay. It is a little awkward, but there's nothing wrong with you, right? This is how we all typically feel, except for those, you know, super extroverts who just (laughs) are are chatty with everyone. Uh, But I think just knowing that that making friends can be uncomfortable, kind of take some of the pressure off, right? That it yeah. is in fact uncomfortable and, you know, that's okay. The yeah. other piece about that is because we have our phones just all the time, I think this really stops us from making those connections because we have an easy way to avoid people, right? It's, it's yep. a norm to be on our phones. And we also have an easy way to think we're being connected to one another yep. through all these different social networking apps. Yep. 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 You're exactly right. You know, connection feels vulnerable and it feels risky. And even though it's maybe one of our most beautiful, protective, amazing experiences that we have as humans, it's the paradox, what I call the paradox of people, that we need people to feel whole and to feel like our full selves and to feel healthy, but n- but no greater threat is posed to us than other people, right? So <laughs> how do we handle this dilemma? Some of us stay in our self-protective mode where I'm not going to reach out. I'm not going to show up. I'm not going to be vulnerable. I'm not going to affirm other people. All of this feels risky, right? But according to the research, self-protection mode is antithetical to pro-relationship mode. When you are in self-protection mode, you're inevitably, there's inevitably negative consequences for your relationships because pro-relationship mode makes us more vulnerable. It is, I'm going to reach out to you. I'm going to show affection to you. I'm going to be vulnerable to you, right? And so there's just no way to avoid the risks. The biggest risk though is avoiding all the risks because mm-hmm. if you're in self-protection mode all the time, eventually, eventually the self-protection becomes self-harm because you're missing out on relationships, connection which predicts how long we live, more than how much we exercise, more than how well we eat, which predicts our happiness more than nearly anything else, which predicts our very vitality, right? And so we need to be able to take the risk. As my niece put it after she read my book, she said, for friendship to happen, someone has to be brave. So be brave. Oh, be brave. Yes, yes, be brave. We can do it. Now you said a word a few times. It used to be a very bad word to me, um, vulnerable. Oh, vulnerability. I used to hate it. Absolutely avoided it at all costs. Hated it, hated it, hated it, hated it. Um, But I realized that, again, for me to have the types of relationships that I think we all deserve, right, those relationships that help us have a big, full life that uh, okay, I guess I have to be vulnerable. And so actually just a couple of years ago, I said, vulnerability is my superpower. Hmm. It was an absolute lie. Um, <laughs> but 
I was like, this is, this it is like, right. I was like talking myself into it and like, how then can I show up in a way that is vulnerable to people, of course, right. That I trust, um, but to kind of put myself out there. All right. So tell us what is vulnerability and why should we be, you know, trying to be vulnerable with people? Yeah. So vulnerability is an authentic expression of ourselves that we fear may result in our shame or alienation, right? It feels particularly risky to share it. And and it's a social construct in a way, right? Because things that feel vulnerable to me reflect my history. Right. And, you know, I talk about in the book, for example, like having sex before marriage, that's vulnerable to admit in many countries, maybe not in the US, we have sex in the city. So, you know, a different social concept. So, so our, what we feel like is vulnerable says something about us. It says something about the culture that we've inhaled, right? Why do we need vulnerability? Because fundamentally as social creatures, it's a lie that we can handle things on our own. What we find is people that suppress emotions go through something called ironic processing which means they begin to think about what they're suppressing more because their bodies are like, am I thinking about it? Am I thinking about it? Am I thinking about it? (laughs) These self-concealers have higher rates of depression and suicidality. People that don't talk about traumas, they have more health issues in the next year. Um, This researcher, Michael Slepian, he studies secrets. When he tried to study who's the best at coping with the weight of their secrets, it wasn't those people that had some sort of, you know, inherent resilience in their body. It was the people that had shared their secrets and received a loving response. And that was internalized. And that's how they became strong. They incorporated into their very being the support that they got from others, right? And so when I asked Dr. Slepian, what's one thing you would suggest for people that are coping with the weight of their secrets? And he says, the number one thing I would suggest is that you have to share them. (laughs) Oh, see, this is why the book is so important because- all of this very practical advice that cuts right deep down <laughs> into all the places that you're like, wait a minute, I'm sorry, what? I'm supposed to do what? <laughs> um, but I think that altogether important practices for the reason that you mentioned, um, because first of all, we need friends just as human beings. That is a need that we all share. Um, although our culture has tried to convince us that we don't need anybody, that we're independent and all these other lies. In fact, in order to experience life, know who we are, we need friends. Now, what I really appreciated, um, especially when you were talking about vulnerability in the chapter, was thinking about how our ideas of masculinity really then hinders men from being vulnerable and also, of course, then hinders their ability to have these deep, intimate friendships. Um, could you talk a little bit about this kind of intersection or crossroads of, of masculinity and vulnerability and friendship? Yeah, I think unfortunately we've come to define masculinity traditionally in ways that are very dehumanizing, right? Like men need vulnerability, men need connection just as much as everyone else, but we've raised boys into men to think that they don't need this and to even be ashamed of something that is so very much human. And this plays out in men's friendships because you know, there's this Atlantic article where the author argues men sort of need this third object in connecting with other men, mm-hmm. this sports game, this video game, this activity, right? That prevents you from having to inch into vulnerability. And the researcher actually finds that women are twice as likely to be vulnerable in a given week and to get that support from their friends as men are. And we know from the research that men tend to experience less intimacy in their friendships for women. And I you know, what I can tell from these dynamics is that I think men's friendship problem is really a vulnerability problem, right? Men just tend to form these more companionate friendships, which are great. We hang out to do things together. But, you know, we saw in the pandemic, right, that those friendships are more fragile because Mm -hmm. if we can't have activities together, whether it's through a global pandemic, whether it's through moving, whether it's to through, you know, getting busy, starting a new job, right? then the relationship sort of tends to die. Whereas when we have those more vulnerable relationships, they just could be more fluid. We don't hang out physically, but we still can, you know, chat and and have that vulnerability. And when people ask, you know, how long does it take to make a friend? 150 hours. But I think that we should put this, we should put this timeline aside because what we find from the research is that 
In fact, if we spend the same amount of time together, but we're vulnerable, we report feeling so much more connected to each other. And we think we burden people with our vulnerability, but in fact, according to the research, the biggest burden we place on our relationships is our silence because, mm-hmm. um, you know, disclosing things intimately about ourselves, it's actually related to people liking us more, not less. Mm. I'm glad you brought up this idea of silence and how we think our silence is really benefiting a relationship. And in fact, it's not um, because you talk about, you have a whole chapter on anger and I love this chapter because I think also culturally we get different messages about when it's okay to be angry and angry about what, Mm -hmm. um, or who can, who's allowed to be angry and what that anger looks like. And I just found this chapter so powerful because anger is not a quote unquote bad emotion, right? It's telling us something. Now, how we express that anger, of course, there can be healthy and unhealthy ways um, or harmful ways. Um, But I'm wondering if you talk a little bit about why it's important to be able to understand our anger and even express our anger in a healthy way. Yeah. So this was my biggest growth area. (laughs) The residue of the anxious attachment. I was so afraid to bring things up, really think it's going to be cataclysmic. Right. And I got to this point where literally my best friend in this world, I was being kind of cold to and less responsive to, because I felt like I needed to get over my issues on my own. And, um, you know, that was being a good friend, you know, pretending everything's okay and trying to get over it without bringing it up. Mm -hmm. And then I came across this study that found that having open empathic conflict is linked to deeper intimacy, that found that people that can do conflict well are more popular, in fact. Um, and it the research really led me to question some of my assumptions here. And also, I, you know, you can kind of see how we're so afraid of bringing up issues because we think people will leave us. But then we just leave them because we, we're, we're not feeling good in the relationship anymore. We have all of these, you know, resentments that have built up over time. And so it's like, we're scared to take this risk because it might lead to a certain outcome. So instead we guarantee that outcome by just withdrawing and ending the friendship. You know, if you think it through, it doesn't really make sense. So, you know, that was my own process. And what helped me is coming to terms with issues fights have gone bad and it hasn't been because I brought up something. It's been because of how I brought it up, right? It's not bringing up problems that tends to be the issue. It's when we bring up problems like you're a bad friend, I'm disappointed in you. How could you do that? Right. And so I, in the, in the chapter, I talk about anger of hope, which is something that secure people tend to embrace. And John Bowlby, one of the fathers of attachment theory, he talks about this little kid whose mom left her alone in the hospital. She had to stay in the hospital for a long time. Later on, she's like, her anger manifests as mom, mommy, like, where were you? Where were you at that time? Whereas another kid, his his caretaker leaves and he says, I hate you, right? He wants to destroy. He wants to enact revenge. That's the anger of despair. The anger of hope is my anger signal is a sing- signal, right? It's a mm-hmm. signal to me that we need to heal something between us so that I can continue to be intimate with you again. Whereas anger of despair I'm going to use my anger because I want to destroy you, right? Which insecure people tend to express more. I want to take revenge onto you. It's not about us. It's about me coping with a feeling that is uncomfortable for me to regulate, right? And Mm -hmm. so in that chapter, I sort of take people through how do we express pain using anger of hope in our friendships? It starts with framing. I'm bringing this up because I care about you. I'm bringing this up because I want us to stay close. I'm bringing this up because I realize if I don't express this, this will linger between us. And that's not what I want because I love you. Um, I statements, you know, I felt this way when this happened. Perspective taking, what was going on on your end? You know, what contributed to your decision? Expression of needs. Here's what I need in the future so that we can continue to maintain our level of connection, which is what I really want. Mm, I love that. And how you just kind of broke it down even quickly, right? In this conversation we're having, you know, in the book, of course, you have all these takeaways. Um, I think about them as homework because I like homework, but maybe other people don't want to think about it like homework because it's, it's bringing up bad memories. But all that to say, you give templates, right? And you give language that people can use because of course, this is going to feel uncomfortable if you haven't approached or invested in your friendships in this way. And so finding the words sometimes is one of the biggest barriers to bringing up some of the conflict or issues we have. And so luckily you give us a some language to start those conversations. 
Now, one of the things you just mentioned was um, how we can bring up conflict or bring up anger in a way that is you know, about keeping the relationship, right? About really centering um, the relationship and prioritizing the relationship versus saying, this is all about me, right? Me, me, me. And this comes up again um, when you talk about generosity. And I love this chapter so Mm. much because you talk about generosity, but you talk about boundaries. Mm -hmm. And I feel like boundaries right now is such a buzzword in our culture. It's all about boundaries. And I think we've maybe taken the boundaries to the extreme. And this chapter, I think, brings us back to why, yes, we need to have boundaries, but what kind of boundaries and what are boundaries really supposed to do? And how can we still be generous in our relationships while also having some boundaries? Um, You talk about communal boundaries. Could you share with our listeners, what is a communal boundary? Yeah. So here's what I was up against as I wrote this chapter, right? The fact that there's a lot of talk on boundaries. It's like, if something makes me feel uncomfortable or inconvenienced, I need to set a boundary. But the reality being one of the most important rules that people embrace in friendship is that you're going to support me in a time of need, right? So what happens when those two things clash? When I feel inconvenienced by this, but also you need support in your time of need. Thus, the development of the sort of communal boundary versus the individualistic boundary. The individualistic boundary is... I'm setting this boundary and I'm not considering what you need or what your circumstance is. It's rigid. Whatever happens, this is my boundary. Communal boundaries say, I am deciding on what's going on in both of our circumstances and to make a decision that's going to serve both of us. So for example, if my boundaries, um, if I have these sort of more communal boundaries, then if you call me at 10 PM to talk about the last episode of Lost and I'm tired, I my boundary is, my boundary is, you know, hey, I'm really tired. Let's chat about this tomorrow. If you call me at 10 p.m. to tell me your kid has been self-harming, I'm going to I'm going to be more fluid and say, this is really important. In this moment, your needs should be centered because they're more urgent. I'm going to stay up a little later, even mm-hmm. if I might have want to set that boundary originally. Right. And it's it's think of boundaries as an act of love and reconciliation for this relationship. Prentice Hempel has this great quote boundaries are the distance at which I can love you and myself at the same time, right? And that's what these communal boundaries are. It's a way of saying, I want to refuel here so I can keep this car going rather than I'm here to park the car, right? Mm -hmm. And the other thing about these boundaries is that when your boundaries are more mutual, more communal in this way, how deep the friendship is determines how you set the boundary versus I have the same boundaries for everybody, right? Like, If someone is a more shallow friend, a friend you're not invested in, sure, just set that boundary with no regard. But if someone's close to you, to me, when you become friends with someone, right, this is what I talk about, the difference between good company and a good friend. Good company means I enjoy your company. I like you as a person. Good friend to me is a responsibility and a commitment. I try to show up for you in times of need. I try to root for you to succeed. I try to reconcile when we have issues between us, right? And so I think those those sort of collective boundaries, those mutual boundaries is what can really allow us to be good friends to people and not just good company. Mm, I love this idea of communal boundaries. Um, Again, I think it is so important because we're not just individuals who can just do everything on our own, but we are in fact supposed to be in relationship, in community, more importantly, with people and these communal boundaries. Again, as you just mentioned, um, give us that opportunity to be committed to one another um, and really show up for one another. And I love that you include kind of like a chart on like, here are individualistic boundaries, here are communal boundaries to help us again reframe how we're thinking about about boundaries again I see so much all the time about boundaries and I, and this is my boundary and I you know all different types of memes or just all um, types of advice on why we should create boundaries but what's missing is this communal part and um, this idea of commitment and love which I think is what you're really talking about in the book Well, let's take another quick break. You're listening to Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. 
We're here on Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm Sanaa, and I'm here with Dr. Marissa G. Franco, the author of Platonic, How the Science of Attachment Can Help You Make and Keep Friends. Absolutely love the book. Cannot say enough good things about it. Um, You talk about something I, I think was really important. I'm so glad that you mentioned it in the book, which is about building friendships, but across difference. Mm -hmm. And I love that you included this in the book because we live in a world that treats people differently based on these different categories that we've given meaning to, such as race, such as gender, such as class. And those do impact how we relate to one another, how we understand one another. And of course, in our it, how we create these friendships or how we show up in these friendships as well. Um, you give some um, advice and some direction on how to build friendships across difference. I'm wondering if you could share some of those with our listeners today. Yeah. So I guess in this part, I really wanted to center people of color because, um, or people from more, from groups that are considered more marginalized because I think a lot of the times this advice is centered around people with privilege. How do you, you know, create connections or work on your biases, right? Um, and then people from more disenfranchised groups are left wondering, you know, am I just the object or the reaction of this? Or do I also have agency in this process? So I recommend the three V's in this chapter for you as someone who might have a more marginalized background to make uh, friends with people that have more privilege than you, but also have it be healthy and intimate. Uh, So the three V's are VET, which means picking people that affirm the worth and value of your group. Um, Vulnerability, which means bringing your whole self to the friendship and expressing the parts of you related to your identity. And voice, which means as issues come up related to your identity differences, you bring them up. And so I, I talk about this with one of my own friends who's a white woman, a race scholar. Um, So she had a deeper understanding of race racial dynamics than, you know, the average white person. I'm, I'm black, white, biracial. And, um, she made an offhanded comment at a party that like, I was a diversity hire as a professor at a different institution at the time. And what I kind of tried to convey in that chapter is that these comments may seem small, but they're cumulative. And when you've had an entire lifetime of people saying or implying that you're less smart or less intelligent, no matter how hard you try, you know, for me, it was high school, you're getting into college because of affirmative action or teachers who would forget that I submitted assignments early or tell me I'm really smart. I have, I would have to be really smart to get into the school I want to get into that I enroll in. Right. Um, And so it's, it's not that these comments are small when they bring up an entire society and what an entire society tells you about your worth and value in the society. It's like each comment is sort of like a cumulative window into that experience. And that's why they're so big, right? Um, to people that, that experience them. And so I, I go through my own process of, of having to bring this up again, as we talked about in the conflict chapter, as a way to reconcile. Because if I don't bring this up, I am going to to pull away from this friendship, right? And I want to stay in community with you. So I have to let you know so that we can remain in community. And so what I suggest now for these conversations, for people that have more privilege, because you know I embrace mutuality throughout the book, which is thinking about other people's needs and our needs as equal. But when we, when we have differences, we need to acknowledge that we're inherently unequal because of our identities, right? Like I've had to listen to your group more than you've had to listen to mine. This is a more sensitive area for me because of an entire history that you have not endured, right? And according to the research, right, when more privileged people listen to people with marginalized backgrounds, it has a more more, more positive effect than when people from marginalized background listen to the experience of people with privilege, right? So it's just, we can't treat these groups equally because they're inherently unequal. It's not a blank slate. And so we need adjusted mutuality. If you're from a privileged group, you have to listen more. You have to understand more, right? You can share your piece, but you have to solicit more because there's just things you may may not be as privy to based on your identity that your friend may be more privy to or based on their experiences are going to be triggers for them that you may not understand, right? And if we think about these conversations as truly it an opportunity for enlightenment. It's it's an opportunity for you to continue to do better about creating these connections across groups, right? Which is how I hope that we can view conflict more generally, right? Then um, we can recognize that the more we listen, the more we have to gain. Mm, Yes. 
the more we listen, the more we have to gain. You know, it can be the book. I love how it gives all of these different um, areas for us to improve as friends and to, and to consider how we're showing up in friendships. And as you mentioned, it, it can be uncomfortable. It definitely takes effort, but it is very much worth it. Um, let's go back to something we kind of started this whole conversation about, which was around um, affection um, and particularly around why sometimes affection is seen negatively, but you talk in the book about the importance of affection. Um, and as we're thinking about friendship, affection is important in our friendships for sure. So can you tell us what even is affection? Because I think when people hear affection, they're already in their mind kind of thinking of something sexual. Yeah. Um, and again, thinking about it in the context of romantic relationships, but here we're talking about platonic friendships. So what is affection as we're thinking about friendships? Yes. Yes. Great question. So affection is any expression that conveys to people that you like and value them, right? So it could be telling someone you love them. It could be complimenting them. It could be some sort of physical affection. Um, yeah. It's just anything that conveys that you have positive regard for someone. I love that. And why is this so important in our friendships that we're giving this affection and that we normalize it? Yeah. So when researchers looked at differences between high affirmers and low affirmers, people express a lot of affection and people that don't, they found that the differences were striking. The high affirmers received more affection. They had fuller social calendars. They were less isolated. According to reciprocity theory, what we put out is what we're more likely to receive back. The more affection we give, the more affection we receive, right? Another mm -hmm. reason affection, though, is really important is because when I talked about you can be in self-protection mode or you can be in pro-relationship mode, we also need to think about how do I help other people around me stay in pro-relationship mode, right? Mm -hmm. And how we do that is that we express affection towards people. When we express affection, we say, this is a safe relationship for you. You can feel safe here. You can invest here. So that's why often the people that are best at creating these relationships show other people that they matter and make other people feel comfortable to get into pro-relationship mode with them. Mm, I love that. I also love in the book for people who are like, okay, but I'm still not sure how I'm supposed to show affection for my friends. I love that you give um, a whole list of ways in the book to show affection to a friend. Uh, I think one, well, one of the many takeaways from the book is that, you know, we overthink a lot of a lot of friendship we think people are going to think that we're weird we you know police ourselves on what we can say we're unsure of what we can you know what we should do because we are afraid of being perceived as weird or most importantly being rejected uh, mm -hmm. but as you talk about in the book um people aren't thinking <laughs> Right, people aren't making all these evaluations of us as, as weird or awkward, uh, but rather we're kind of placing all this anxiety on ourselves. Yep. Yeah, I, I cite a study that finds that when we express affection, people predicted it would come off as more, more awkward than the receiver actually said, and people underestimated just how much people would enjoy and appreciate it. So in general, throughout the book, you'll find I, I point out our negativity bias, which means when we make predictions of our social world, they're inaccurate and often negative, right? And so often I, I, I ask people like, for me, I have just trouble asking for support. But instead, if I ask myself, what would it be like if they asked me for support? Then my prediction can be more accurate because my own self-defense mechanisms don't come out and factor into the prediction. So similarly, when it comes to affection, what would it be like if someone complimented me, told me they really like me or think I'm so great, right? Would it be weird or would I be like, wow, yay, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> right, I love that reframe. And throughout the book, again, so many great questions, quotes, and just reframes that help us really get outside of ourselves. And uh, again, get outside of ourselves, get outside of our house so that we can actually make these friends and keep them. I mean, such an important book. And especially now when I think maybe people might feel like their social skills are a little rusty coming off of, you know, a pandemic or, or being both socially distant and maybe even um, a little bit feeling isolated as well. So perfect timing on a book on how we can make and keep friends. Dr. Frankos, thank you so much for being here with us this morning. I really appreciated talking with you and learning more about your book. Thank you so much for having me. This was such a pleasure.
Thanks again to Dr. Marissa G. Franco for being here with us this morning. As you could tell from our conversation, this book has so many great gems and practical takeaways for something that is integral to who we are for everyone, right? This idea of friendship, of making friends, keeping friends, being a good friend, and at a time where I think it can be difficult to maybe connect with people or you are feeling awkward in how to make friends, I think this book is the perfect guide to helping us make and keep friends. There was so much in here that I am going to come back to. If you could see my copy of the book, you would just see all these highlighted passages and little notes to myself. Uh, like I said, the book is full of, I'll say takeaways. Um, I think of it as a little homework. <laughs> um, just again, tips and strategies to make and keep friends, something that we can all definitely put into practice. Well, for today's positive note, I want to leave you with something that Dr. Franco said earlier in our interview, which is that in the beginning, friendship is uncomfortable. And I think that is good news to actually understand that and realize that, hey, this discomfort that I'm feeling of kind of meeting people or making new friends, it is perfectly normal. There is nothing wrong with me. It's okay. And then to keep showing up, right? To keep being a friend. Um, I love that idea. So I'm going to write this down as a little mantra or affirmation to myself that friendship is uncomfortable. And you could probably tell from our conversation that a lot of the key components of friendship are going to make us a little uncomfortable if we're not used to, for example, addressing conflict, right, proactively, if we're not used to giving affection, right, if we're not used to being generous, but also setting communal boundaries. If we haven't done this before, then guess what? It is going to be uncomfortable, but friendships do take effort, right? They don't just happen magically, <laughs> um, but they do require effort. This has been Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm Sanaa and I'm here every Monday morning talking to some absolutely amazing folks from across the country who are doing really interesting work on topics that you've probably been curious about. If you missed any part of this episode, maybe you want to listen to it again or send it to a friend, don't worry. You can also catch the replays on Apple, Spotify, wherever you stream podcasts, you can find Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR. And of course, you can also find archive shows on WYXR.org. I cannot wait for you to join me again next Monday morning.